Hi, everyone. Today is July 15th, 2020, and welcome to another episode of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. Today, we pick back up with our mini theme on artificial intelligence. Last episode, we had a wonderful and far-reaching talk with Professor Melanie Mitchell on the nuts and bolts of AI. And today, we're delighted to have Professor Joshua Gans on to speak about the economics of AI with his book, Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence, co-written with professors Ajay Agrawal and Avi Goldfarb. Among much else, Joshua is a professor of strategic management and holder of the Jeffrey S. Skoll Chair of Technical Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He's also the chief economist at Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab, where he teaches entrepreneurial strategy. This is an expansive career that features several books, numerous publications and awards. And in fact, back in 2007, Joshua started his career at the University of Melbourne, Australia, close to where he grew up in Sydney. And I think you're going to pick up on that accent throughout the interview. Aside from all the books and accolades, I think you'll find Professor Gans not only a great mind, but a gregarious one as well, something we could use a lot more of these days. This interview was conducted by phone as Professor Gans was in Toronto at the time of the taping. And in fact, the first set of our podcast interviews were all conducted just before the COVID-19 pandemic gripped the world. And on that note, you may want to check out Professor Gans' newest, short but thoughtful and very timely book, Economics in the Age of COVID, published by the MIT Press. It's available on digital and audio, and I not only enjoyed it, but I couldn't help but be impressed by his ability to synthesize so much information so quickly and get it out to the public. So without further ado, our conversation with Professor Joshua Gans. Enjoy. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. You know, one question we always ask our guests is, why should investors be familiar with your work? In particular, we wanted to be able to think about and do what we did best as economists and business school professors and think about how to explain and structure decisions with regard to, you know, is artificial intelligence relevant for your business? We spent a lot of time talking to economic historians about a technological change and whether something's a big radical technology or not, which helped crystallize our thinking in terms of, you know, what do you look for with something called artificial intelligence that can give it some economic meaning? How do you translate what is quite technical into things that are relatable from an economic set? And so that's why we eventually wrote the book. So tell us a little bit about yourself, but I want to start a little bit more towards the beginning of your journey. So how did you start to think about this and how did all that begin? Well, we became interested in artificial intelligence around 2014 when we saw through our program called the Creative Destruction Lab here at the University of Toronto, many startups coming applying this new form of technology, machine learning, which is a catch-all for the latest advances in artificial intelligence. And, you know, when you see that happening literally on your doorstep, you get interested as to whether you're seeing something significant or not. And we became convinced that this was going to be a big thing. How does a collaborative process work when you're working with other prominent economists, other economists who do quite a lot of writing? How do you come together that way? How do you have a common idea? And really, how do you work together? Well, I think 
think we're all colleagues. Uh, we, you know, we're all in the same building. We were all involved in the program for the startup firm. So these things come naturally through discussions. I think at various times saw different angles on the phenomenon. And so it was through that interaction that we ended up writing the book together. And uh, it's an interesting process. We each have our strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I guess we ended up complementing each other. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, one of the real, I think, just stark and interesting points of view of the book is that when you look at AI, machine learning as as an economic issue, you sort of describe predictions ultimately as a kind of commodity, or at least some point they'll be in the future kind of a commodity. And that really one of the things I learned from it was that we just do a lot more predicting day to day than we realize we do, that life is just full of those predictions. Yes. You know, just to step back a second, artificial intelligence itself has a whole lot of loaded meanings, which was part of the confusion. You know, yeah. it gets built up in popular culture, you know, Terminator movies and what have you. And so that gives a sort of distorted view on what we really have right now. I see our role as economists to somewhat desexify these sorts of things. <laughs> and so <laughs> what that meant was, in this case, was saying, you know, what is this machine learning really doing? It's not, it hasn't created a robot. It hasn't created a new intelligent life form or anything like that. What it does is one thing. It improves our ability as essentially statisticians to predict stuff. Yeah. So that's all it did. And so when you realize that, you start saying, well, where do we use prediction? And in some places, it's fairly obvious. People predict the weather. Uh, whether you take an umbrella to whether you launch an invasion of uh, Normandy. Those are reasons to have those predictions. But what's interesting is that prediction problems are not always just about the future. They can be about other things as well. For instance, if I want to train a computer to find pictures of cats, what I'm saying is I want the computer to examine all of those pixels in images and tell us when they find something that a human person would agree with the cat. <laughs> it sounds very convoluted, actually, but it is still at its heart a prediction problem where you've got a whole lot of information that you don't know what to do with, and you put it through a filtering process to take and give you information that you need. So I've seen you in several venues, and one of them you were speaking about, Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, and you sort of described yourself as kind of in the middle on AI, particularly as you've described it in terms of its dangers and its promise. Where are you on that today? I think I'm still about the same. I would be uh, relative to a few years ago where people were a little bit more excited about how things were improving. I would be a little bit more pessimistic, you know, in my forecast of when we're going to get the real intelligence, not just prediction, but something is artificially intelligent. At the same time, I think everything that I've seen in, you know, I guess about five years of that time has been reinforcing the idea that artificial intelligence works best when it's matched with humans. Right. And so that's kind of where these things are going. And, and just to give you an example of that, is back in 2015, people were forecasting by 2019, we would have self-driving cars on the road. Absent any legal issues about whether that was going to happen or not, we haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's a difficult task because essentially 99% of the time you can't have a self-driving car. But the 1% or whatever it might be, you need somebody there. When those things occur, if you don't have a human doing something, the consequences are so costly that you may as well have a human driving around. 
I think this slowed up in terms of some of the projections that were made. That is quite interesting. And, and, you know, in our field of endeavor, which is investments, such things have been employed, attempted to be employed. But my personal view is your insight is absolutely correct, that you still need the overlay of human intelligence or, or some kind of a decision-making facility there, at a minimum, to be in concert with some of the models that get created. And yet, a lot of folks in this industry will claim that you can just set a model and make it a prediction machine. What, what do you think are the limitations of these things? I mean, can these things ultimately really predict majorly, let's call them chaotic systems? Essentially, our ability to predict with anything, let alone AI, is grounded in our past experience. And even if that experience is extremely rich, there are situations and there are places where new things occur. If new things occur, our predictive models, AI or otherwise, break down and we have to relearn. Which domains are conquerable versus not and how far can you go? That is still very much an open question and I think we're still learning on it. I mean, I think we're relatively more optimistic being able to forecast financial markets. I'm pretty sure that's not on the tape <laughs> because for excellent reason. As soon as we develop something that is forecastable, people change their behavior and the model goes out the window. There's no doubt about that. So that's the first thing. But the second thing in terms of the adoption and performance of AI is in knowing what to do with it. So one of the things we learn from the history of major technological change, electricity, computers, etc., is that it takes time. You know, the productivity didn't come up from electricity until about 40 years after it was first deployed for use to power machines and things like that because factories had to be redesigned completely around the fact that they now had cheap power. And, and once that redesign happened, then things could get exploited. And so I think we're going to see the same thing happen. And one of the goals that we had writing the book was to get people thinking about the fact that it's not just some magical thing. You can't just buy some AI and you're going to have dividends. You have to work out how it's going to fit in. So you mentioned this notion of productivity, and I know that quite a lot of your writing and quite a lot of the book actually does some discussion about how do companies deal with this, and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of hope for it. And one of the things you mentioned was that, in fact, you know, humans have to interact, and I've often been fascinated by the game of chess because Gary Kasparov, uh, in particular, his view is very close to the one you articulated, which is that even in a system like, which is a fairly closed system, like a chessboard, the interaction between the human and what version of AI that they use for chess is, in fact, often the most potent thing. It's not just the machine itself. But there's been so many famous predictions, and you're talking about the delays in technology and how long it takes to implement something, about productivity and when the end of work will come and so forth. You seem more optimistic about that. What are you saying, though, to companies right now as they ask you about what they ought to do with these things? I have a broad message. It's that if you were sitting there saying, I could adopt AI, and on the benefit side of the ledger is something calculated like, here is the amount of labor cost I can save by doing this, <laughs> some projected amount. My advice currently is to throw away that kind of thinking. Invariably, your ability, just like with a self-driving car, the ability to kick out a human You've got to get things right on a lot of dimensions to be able to do that. Because more often than not, when we try to remove a human, we realize that they were doing more than we thought they were. So, you know, people might talk about, okay, with self-driving cars, you can get rid of a human who's driving a school bus. 
And that may be true, but that's a very different question because now you say to yourself, ah, so you would be happy having your kids get together, get picked up by a self-driving bus with no adults on board. Parents are just taking a hold on a second, wait a second, no, 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 that's different. <laughs> because the school bus driver is not only driving the bus, they're protecting the kids from various things, including each other. In other words, you should be thinking about, well, now that that's the case, what can I do with that person? They don't have to worry about driving. Maybe they can start the class lessons on the bus. And I think that also applies to things like truck drivers. Truck drivers is this big category, 3 million in the U.S., one of the biggest employment categories in most economies. So people say, oh, we can have self-driving thing. We won't have to have any of these truck drivers. And then you start to think, you, know, you really want to sand a road all the way across Canada, <laughs> east to west, with no one there? What if something happens? What if somebody tries to hijack it and steal whatever's in the load? And you start to realize that the driver is doing more than just driving. Right. <laughs> but the idea that you're going to fire that person, mm, not as obvious now. <laughs> so that's my thought for businesses is don't think about it that way. Don't think about human replacement. It's a bit of a pipe dream. Think about human augmentation first. I'd like to go a little more broad and, and talk a little bit about your career and some of your other influences. I know you work at the Center for Creative Destruction. How important to you are some of the economic influences as Joseph Schumpeter? How do you see things like creative destruction today, both good and bad? So the term creative destruction was coined by an economist, Joseph Schumpeter, who noticed in the early 1900s what was driving the economy was innovation new things, new ideas. First of all, innovations are inherently creative. You get a new better mousetrap. At the same time, when you get a new mousetrap, what happens to the people who are making the old mousetrap? <laughs> Any innovation that comes into play is usually destroying something. But it's also interesting, sometimes you see an act of creation that ends up destroying something that you wouldn't have forecast. So, for instance, we got the iPhone launched in 2007, and I don't think anyone who was looking at the iPhone said, well, that's it for taxis. Taxis are gone <laughs> because of this. Yeah. But in fact, that is what has happened. You see where the disruption comes in. So sometimes it's a long way removed. I think that's actually the notion that we don't know for any given innovation, where the best creation is going to be, let alone where the destruction is going to be, is part of that. And as economists, we like to remind people of that fact. And we also like to, in our creative destruction lab, emphasize that when someone comes in with a scientific breakthrough, the path to market means adjudicating now a whole set of market and other experiments. And it's going to take some time to work out how that occurs. And moreover, scientists are going to need some help along the way. We, we can't expect a scientist to coming out with a new breakthrough in AI to also necessarily understand the nuances of business development around that. <laughs> so you have to put all those things together. And I feel our job is to remind people of what else is required in getting innovations to work. And so you've alluded to this a few minutes prior, but you think that artificial intelligence, or perhaps we'll call it machine learning for this, is fairly early in its stages of that process. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, if you imagine the fusion of a technology as like an elongated S-curve, you know, at the early stages of the technology, it sort of like gets a little bit of traction. And then at some point it takes off and it's everywhere. And then eventually it hits some sort of upper limit. 
we're at the upper limit of adoption of iPhones. That took a process of a decade or so. But with AI, it's not just that we're trying to push people using this stuff. We're still trying to get it technically better. And so we're still on that middle bottom part. <laughs> we could be getting a lot of improvement, but I still think we're still a ways off knowing what to do with it, knowing what its potential is, et cetera, et cetera. Now, many people think that rate of change is accelerating, but you know, you've sort of alluded to there's friction here. There are frictions. And do you see an accelerating rate of change? It's simultaneously possible to believe something is accelerating and also to believe there are frictions that are holding back it accelerating even faster. <laughs> so I think that's basically where we are. So I would say, yes, it's accelerating. Very exciting developments have occurred. There are fields that have seen big jumps in sort of what they thought could be done by computers. But what we don't know yet is where the biggest bang for the buck is going to be. We may very easily use AI to work out what's in pictures. And it's useful if you're interested in searching pictures for particular things. <laughs> That's great. But what we don't know is, now that I can do that, now what? Is there something surprising that might come of that? And we've seen surprise happen before. What computers do is one thing. They do arithmetic, and they do it very well. And so initially, when we got computers, people used them to calculate things they were already calculating, such as artillery tables, statistics, things, etc. But then, eventually, the cost of doing those calculations became so low, people realized, hey, I can use this stuff to encode and distribute music. That's just arithmetic at some level. Essentially, that's what's going on. And so you get these entirely new things. And I think what we haven't seen yet with artificial intelligence are those new things. That's when you'll know that things are starting to get real. One thing I've noticed about your body of work across many books now is that you just have a real facility for communicating these difficult economic concepts to a broader public. How in your career have you approached that and thought through doing that? Thank you for saying that. I, I think it's something that developed through practice. I guess I was fortunate to have received my academic tenure and to be sort of a little bit more relaxed at a time when being able to write a blog started to become a thing. I guess I just started making that part of my day-to-day -day life. And so writing and doing this sort of thing is a bit like a muscle. <laughs> if you practice long enough, you start to get better at it. And so I found that blogging was that for me. I, I did blogging for a number of years before I started writing books on the subject. I think now, actually, blogs have sort of disappeared by the wayside. <laughs> but it was really that early practice of day-to-day -day writing two or three blog posts about all sorts of random topics, trying to explain it to myself and the world. It is funny, yeah. Trying to explain something to yourself is usually one of the best ways to do it. But... What have been some of your key influences, and what are some of your favorite books on economics? Oh, I've got different ones, depending on mood and other things like that. In terms of inspiration for people who write about translating economics for the real world, I'm a big fan of the work of Tim Harford, who started with a book called The Undercover Economist, and he has a particular style about him that I, I really appreciate, the ability to sort of translate that information. In terms of Economics books that I've read that have influenced me quite a bit is one by Ken Arrow, who was a Nobel Prize winner in economics and also my thesis advisor for The Limits of Organization, which was a series of lectures. It showed why it was that organizations, you know, had trouble staying at the frontier of efficiency all the time. So you have this sort of choice between I can be at the frontier now or I can be a bit away from the frontier but be more resilient. 
what I liked about it was just how clearly it was written and laid out. Ken Arrow, to my understanding, was was a real pioneer in what you might call some of the complexity sciences as well, fusing yeah. some of the economics and complexity sciences. And in fact, we had just recently had a discussion with Melanie Mitchell at the Santa Fe Institute, who also spoke about Arrow and his influence as well. That's really very interesting. To finish things out here, what is it that you wish everyone knew or understood better about prediction machines, artificial intelligence in general? What's the one parting shot you would say, I wish everyone understood? I think at the moment, I would like people to understand both how boring it is <laughs> and mirror statistics and how great statistics is. <laughs> Amen. So, so I, I want simultaneously, it's a mirror advance of statistics, but that's great. That's what I want people to understand. Well, my guest today has been Professor Joshua Gans. Thank you again so much. I mean, really, that was a pleasure to do. Thanks for Stephen time. There you have it, our conversation with Professor Joshua Gans. For me, the lesson, and this is so often the case in investing, is that unintended consequences are the norm, especially when you're talking about things like new technology. I personally loved Professor Gans' idea that, you know, when the iPhone arrived, nobody instantly said, well, that's it for taxis. I think that's a brilliant way to consider that. And it's also very consistent with Melanie Mitchell's view when we had her on the program that, yes, AI is powerful, it can be powerful, but in very specific domains, and it's no replacement for human judgment and context, not by a long shot. At any rate, thanks again to Josh, and thank you again for listening. Wherever you may be hearing The Well-Read Investor, please comment, like, and subscribe. Or visit our website, wellreadinvestor.com, for more information. And look for additional book reviews not featured on the podcast coming soon. Meet us back here in two weeks on July 29th when we speak with Dr. Brian Arthur about his book, Complexity and the Economy. We'll embark on a very broad discussion about economics, complexity, the nature of technology of which Dr. Arthur is an expert, and we'll even touch on the idea of free will in human economic action. It's going to get weird. So until then, may all of your reading profit your mind and your money, and take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The foregoing is for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. Nothing herein is intended to be a recommendation or a forecast of market conditions. Rather, it is intended to illustrate a point. Current and future market conditions may differ significantly from those illustrated here. Not all past forecasts were, nor future forecasts may be as accurate as those predicted herein.